This episode of Driven Minds Podcast is brought to you by Vela Bougie Candle Company. Enjoy an array of eco-friendly, hand-poured soy candles made from the finest fragrances and essential oils. Get your Vela Bougie Candle today at VelaBougie.com and follow them on Instagram at VelaBougie. Enjoy the show. Driven Minds Podcast, Franz Bowen. This is Trav Weeks. Yeah, yeah, in for another installment. You know, happy Thursday, Travis. Absolutely, it's been a great day. How was your day? It, it was wonderful. Nice. And, and getting better still. Absolutely. Uh, we have another special guest in the building, uh, CEO and founder of Brava Investments, Natalie, Mon- pardon me, Natalie Molina Nino. I did that on purpose, just so <laughs> it'll trip you up. <laughs> Nice. It's nice to be here. It's really nice to be here. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on board. Um, when Natalia told me about you, I just got so interested just for what you represent. Um, you know, just being a representation of, of Latina women and what you're doing in the investment in the tech space is amazing, right? We need more voices, more people like you just that represent that space to come out so other people can understand that they can do it too. So. I just want to take it back from the beginning for our audience. Let's take it back from the beginning with you, you sure. know, where you're from, um, how yeah. did you get into this space, and yeah, we can start from there. Um, those are good questions. They don't connect at all. Um, sure. So I'm from LA. Um, I grew up in LA, and then I grew up between LA and Ecuador. I'm half Ecuadorian, half Colombian. Nice. Um, and Thanksgiving must be awesome. <laughs> Let me tell you, 40% Native American, not so into Thanksgiving. Okay, uh, so. I'll take that back. <laughs> you might want to reel that one. No, it's, uh... it's just it's also just like not a cultural thing, you know. Like um, we didn't really grow up with that. Um, but I've been sort of an adopted Thanksgiving uh, guest at plenty of other people's. Um, things but yeah so I I grew up in LA I grew up with a a South American family Um, only Spanish allowed at home so that was super important Um, and my family came to the United States because my grandmother uh, was a seamstress at a sweatshop and so one by one she brought each of her kids into the country Um, and so I grew up in the sweatshops of LA Um, I grew up in you know under machinery and like that was what I knew. Um, and then my dad ended up starting a factory. My uncle ended up starting a factory. Wow. Um, and that's sort of how my family came to be, right? In the U.S. anyway. And so when I started my career, I wanted to be as far away from, from that as I could. And so I did the thing that like immigrant kids have to do, right? You either study engineering or medicine or law. <laughs> These are your choices. Um, I was super into the environment, so I studied engineering. And then... Um, the long and short of it is that, yeah, I accidentally started a company um, right well, well during the dot-com boom, basically. Um, I wish I could credit myself for being super smart, but I have to say we got some lucky breaks, you know, back then. A lot of people, if you, if you could code and you started a, you know, a dot-com, um, a lot of people threw dumb money at you, um, and I was definitely one of those. Um, and then I continued my career in tech. Um, I ended up being focused on tech globalization. So my businesses were mostly about helping American companies in tech figure out how to go to Europe, to Africa, to South America, to Asia, and on and on. Um, that kind of became my, my secret sauce. Um, so I did that for about 15 years and then about seven years ago, so in 2011, I basically retired from tech. I was, I was, uh, I was done. Um, for all sorts of reasons um, and then I uh, to how I got here what I ended up doing is um, I moved to New York I co-founded a center for women entrepreneurs uh, within the Athena Center which is um, at Barnard College at Columbia University um, anybody who's never taught before like I never imagined that I would love teaching so much um, wow. but I really did um, and it was my phase in my life where I was like okay I was the only woman in the room most of my career. I was the only Latina usually in the building. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the next phase of my life, I'm gonna pay it forward. And so for me, it was like, let's work with women entrepreneurs. Um, and I did that for a few years and what I realized 
I worked with kids from high school. I worked with a whole program that we had for women over the age of 50, who PS are twice as likely to be successful as entrepreneurs, and nobody talks about that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I did all this work and I realized, you know, what women are lacking is an education. Like, that's not a thing. Women aren't held back because they lack education. They're held back just because they lack money. It's really simple. Mm -hmm. um, and so I realized I was putting all this energy into something that is valuable. I will never say that education is not valuable, but the number one problem is capital. And so I was Absolutely. like, let me put my energy where I'm most needed. And so it was through my work at Columbia um, that I realized if I'm going to put my energy into something, it should be this. And so I had never been in finance in my life. Um, I've only been, you know, on the receiving end, um, and I wasn't particularly fond of the VC world. Mm -hmm. um, what? I came to the conclusion after 15 years in tech uh -huh. that we had competing interests. So in the beginning, when I was really young, I was so glad that there were VCs in the room because they probably saved me for myself. They kept, you know, there were like adults in the room helping the 21 year old not be stupid. Um, wow. But eventually, once I got good at managing businesses, it became really clear to me that all the decisions that I was making was with the people in mind, right? So like at some point there were 5,000 mouths to feed and I knew a lot of their kids and spouses and like all of my decisions, I think any entrepreneur, right? Your decisions start to be fueled based on the people who rely on you. Mm -hmm. And so I was making decisions that were good for the company that were 10, 15, 20 years out. That's how I was thinking. Mm -hmm. And the VCs were just looking for an exit two to three years out. Mm -hmm. And the advice they were giving me was with that in mind, it was how do we get our money back and exit and get rid of this company within two, you know, whatever, one to five, one to three years. And it became really clear to me that we had very different priorities and that relationship and that whole dynamic with short-term investing versus entrepreneurs that are building forever businesses. Um, that's something that I always thought was a problem and I still think it's a problem, which is why the sort of investing that I do is long view. First of all, um, that was blown away. Amazing. I'm blown away. You said so much. <laughs> I, I want to. I'll, I'll pause. I'll pause. No, but before before we like jump into the meat, yeah, I want to go back to get go back real quick. So you you opened and said you became an entrepreneur by accident, right? Yeah. right. Which is a lie. Yeah. Because it's a lie. Your you yeah. Because I mean, your, I your, your family, you you were groomed like you know yeah, through yeah, osmosis absolutely. and you know just watching your well, more than osmosis. Some mm. people in their I don't know. Some people say that you can't talk about politics and work or business at the dinner table. That's all we talked about. Yeah. I mean, we we joked that I got my MBA at the dinner, at the dinner table. Because right? wow. that's what you talk about. So was that a thing for you and your family? Was it like because they you, you, you said your uncles went out and started their own factories yeah. and whatnot? Was that like a big deal? Was this something natural? How your family moves like they were entrepreneurial in spirit and in mind you know my dad's side of the family is definitely entrepreneurial yeah I think that it was it was probably just a family thing I mean my grandfather who I never met um, and in fact I've never even seen a photo of him um, he he was the town uh, cobbler like that's what mm. he did mm. um, and then my um, I guess grandfather on the other side of the family was um, or great-grandfather, I should say, he was like in one of those, this is like a poem from Pablo Neruda, like one of those American food company things, right? Like Banana Republic. So my family lived in Ecuador in one of those towns that's basically owned by an American fruit company, mm. right? Um, and my great-grandfather was the guy that was like the bookkeeper. Um, so I don't know, numbers and entrepreneurial um, tendencies, I guess it's, yeah, it's yeah. in the blood. I, so I, I did a little Googling and your story <laughs> is actually really interesting on how you started your, your coding business, right? So Okay. First of all, you ride motorcycles, right? I do. That's dope. I do. I Very do. super dope. So uh, Trav, I'm not sure if you know this story. <laughs> Uh-oh. But in college, right? Yeah. I'm studying. Um, the, the, the Colorado winters become very uh, treacherous on the road, so they're not ample for... So, Natalie goes to the car dealership and says, I'm going to give you my bike, like trade it, I want to trade in my bike, and then I'm going to build you a website to make up the difference. 
where where did you come up with that like <laughs> scheme and then to have the you yeah know, the courage like what was that conversation like? That's when the pitching started. The first I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I am of the belief that, you know, necessity. Like, mm. I don't know. If I had the money to go and buy myself a car, then I probably would have bought myself a car. But I didn't. And I knew that, you know, the value of the motorcycle would have amounted to like half of the value of this like one cheap Grand Cherokee that I saw in somebody's like, I specifically went to the dealership that was the most scrappy looking, like mm -hmm. the one that, you know, mm -hmm. it was not fancy, it clearly barely had signs, much less a website right, right. Um, in 1996, right? Um, and yeah, my friends and I had taught ourselves how to make websites and so I knew that I could do it. Um, wow. But I, you know, I didn't have the money for a car and I needed one. So I, this I don't know what to say. Space and WordPress yeah. Before Wix, before WordPress, before yeah. any of that, the internet was like blinking kitty cats and horrible fonts. Like, that was it. What did that uh, that uh, situation teach you early on? Like, what, what was that? What was the lesson that you carried away from that experience? Um, I've always been a believer that if you do a good enough job of figuring out what people need, that you never have to beg. Mm. Right? I wasn't begging. I wasn't trying to get a handout. I was giving the guy something he needed. Mm. Um, and if it was worth that much money for him, then he would happily do the trade, and he did. Right? Um, I think that's important. I think that when you're scrappy and poor, um, sometimes having a little bit of that arrogance of saying, wait a second, I have something that is valuable. I just have to find who the person is, you know, that matches with this thing that I've got. Um, so, I, I don't know, I think that probably is what, what it taught me. It taught me that at 20 years old, I could be a little arrogant. I could walk up to somebody and be like, I know something you don't know, and I can help you. Um, and I, you know, I could say I got lucky, because I did, and that he said yes, but the reality is, is if he had said no, I would have just kept asking and found somebody to say yes, right? Mm, nice. So, coding up, Convention to say that coding was that catalyst that got you into your first business and starting your company or whatnot. Yeah. So what was the first company again? That's it was. Started. So I was studying cartography. Max. Um, yeah. Okay. So I was studying, um, and it was at the time when like GIS GPS was just starting to be a thing, and mm. so it was super exciting. I got to sort of be on the cutting edge of that, mm. and it was because of that, and because I had studied engineering, that yeah, I knew how to code. And then my friends and I were figuring out what's this internet thing, and we were teaching ourselves. Yeah. Um, I had like a, I don't know, eight bucks an hour student job managing the computer labs for this university for CU Boulder. Mm. And what do you do when you're managing a lab sitting around with a bunch of geeks? We taught ourselves to code um, and nice. to make websites, and so. Um, yeah, so because of my background in cartography and because I was super into maps, the first company was called Web Meridians. Web Meridians. Mm -hmm. Yeah, super nice. geeky. No one would remember it. <laughs> right, like, right. you know, yeah, but that was our name. Yeah, it was yeah. all about maps. Got it. Was that transition is what led you also to, um, I believe the next one was you worked in different multifaceted businesses, like for nonprofit sectors and from the nonprofit Bill and Gates Melody. Bill and Melina Gates Foundation as well? So what I did after that was I helped US businesses, mostly in tech, mm -hmm. go international. And so Microsoft was one of my clients. And what happened was when Microsoft learned about our company and started to work with us a lot, then everybody around Microsoft started to work with us. And so yeah, um, we most of our clients were actually tech companies or they were entertainment companies. That was my sort of area of expertise. So like Disney, Mattel, the BBC, the Discovery Channel, those, those were my clients. Um, but Bill and Melinda Gates, when they created the foundation, um, they immediately went international, right? And they started to do work all over the world. And so when they went into Latin America, they knew us from Microsoft. Mm -hmm. And they were like, can, can you guys help us Absolutely. basically this, go global? This all sounds super rosy, right? What were, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, First uh -huh. opportunity, then it just snowballs. Uh -huh. it, you know, what were some of the early challenges? Uh -huh. Like, you know, when you're walking into these rooms, you know, as a Latina woman, yeah. um, and, and, and representing, you know, just a, not only a culture, but, you know, women as well. What were some of the early challenges that you faced, you know, trying to get your point across? Well, let's be super clear, especially for anybody who listens to this later, I'm passing, right? So I have the advantage of being able to walk in the room and 
when in the U.S. they take your second last name away, right? So mm -hmm. you can't have the second last name the way that you do in Latin America. When they do your passport, they make you choose one, right? So my last name is Molina Nino, but in the U.S. officially, if you look at my ID, it's Natalie Molina, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I have the lucky privilege of being able to walk into a room and I remember multiple times people being like, oh, Molina, is that Italian? <laughs> right? mm -hmm. And I'm like, mm, I yeah, think you maybe want it to be. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. And so it was early in my 20s that I realized that I didn't want to hide behind that and I certainly didn't want to actively try to pass. And so I intentionally made it so that, no, 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 my name is Molina Nino. And that's not confusing now, is it? <laughs> no one's going to think you're Italian now. Um, but I was lucky in that sense, um, in that I didn't, you know, unlike an African-American woman who walks into a room, I can't, you know, that person can't hide, right? Mm -hmm. um, as a passing Latina, I can. Um, people don't bring it up or, you know, I think that I probably have a, a lot of advantages over people who can't do that. Um, but in terms of other, other types of challenges, like when I first, when I started my first company, I started it um, by myself and then I had more work than I could handle. So I brought on my boyfriend. For anybody who ever wants to do something like that, that's I would highly discourage it. <laughs> that's not the move. <laughs> that's, not, that's not the move. Right. Um, and then we had more work than we could handle and we brought on a third partner who was a really good friend of ours, um, who was uh, recently graduated from college, same as us. Um, I dropped out, but he had uh, graduated from CU. Um, and he was mostly cycling, like full time. He was a, a, a road cyclist. And so what ended up happening is that he ends up getting into this big, big team that's like connected to Lance Armstrong, this is Boulder, Colorado. Um, and it was like opportunity of a lifetime. He's like, I'm gonna go and ride. And I'm like, you're seri like, you're seriously gonna leave our startup to go and ride your bike? And of course, I didn't know who Lance Armstrong was or who any of this was, so I didn't understand. But it was an opportunity of a lifetime. He leaves, so now we have you know a whole bunch of work and we have employees and you know my um, boyfriend and I split up. Um, he gets pretty pissed off one night and he basically says, I'm out. And it was wow. just like, well okay, if you're out, then you need to sign over your percentage of the company or Absolutely. so you can't just like leave. Mm -hmm. um, and he did me the biggest favor that a human being could possibly have done. He left and said, yeah, I'm gonna sign over my shares to you because this company's worthless when I leave anyway. What are you gonna do, run it alone? Oh, shit. Um, <laughs> And that right there is when she turned up. That right there. Yeah, that was kind of the best thing he could have done, right? Um, it's been 20 years, so I probably am paraphrasing wrong, but that was the gist of what he said. Um, no. And that has fueled me, you know, it probably still fuels me a little bit. Um, so it was hard, right? At that point, um, everything that I did after that was with the idea of like proving, right? Proving that like, yeah, I can totally do this alone. And I think I probably overshot a little because what happened is I ended up developing a style of management that wasn't very collaborative. It was just about like win mm. at all costs, mm, um, work your ass off, you know, hustle, be the first one in and the last one to leave. Mm -hmm. um, that was it. Like I was going to prove to everybody that, you know, I could be more of a badass than the biggest badasses around me. Um, and you know, that has its moment, but that's not sustainable. And so, um, I would say that that was the other challenge is like eventually once I left tech seven years ago, realizing that like, no, you can't always be the first one in and the last one out. You can't always outwork people. There are people out playing golf who are somehow still at the same level, making the same amount of money, being as successful, but they're having vacations and they're chilling and they're not killing themselves the way that you're killing yourself. Like, more like working smarter than harder. Totally, totally. And also like understanding that sometimes that social time is as valuable, right? Like the, the big boy deals Absolutely. sometimes happen on the golf course. I refuse but I have my version of the golf course. Got it, got it. Because I wanted to talk about why we're on challenges, because you're in these rooms and you're convincing these clients of why it's so important and the different ways for them to tap into the international space. Yeah. Um, why is that so important for companies, even small businesses, startups, to start thinking instead of just nationally, but thinking globally? Yeah. You know, I, I mean, if it's about growth, it, at some point it's going to be about global, right? Um, if, if you plan on growing your company, regardless, uh, a lot of the times people think, I'll give you three examples. Apple, Google, and Microsoft are three companies that people perceive as being American. They're not anymore. 
Mm. Over 60% of Microsoft's revenues when I stopped working with Microsoft, which was about seven years ago, so who knows what the number is now. But when I left and stepped down from my last company, over 60% of Microsoft revenues were coming from international markets. Wow. So, I mean, it's just, if you plan to grow your company, then you need to plan to go international. And even if you aren't going international, but you want to make sure to maximize what you're doing here, there are a lot of people who speak a lot of languages in the United States. And if you're going to compete, um, you're probably better off thinking from the get-go of what that looks like, whether it's tech, whatever it is. Um, so for me, it wasn't so much selling people on why they have to think globally and why they have to think in lots of languages and lots of cultures. It was more of how to do it better, right? And we would get companies who had screwed it up, who had offended somebody, who had just done it wrong, and so they would come to us and we would fix it. Did Pepsi give you a call? <laughs> Man, um, if they had, I don't know if I would have returned it. But um, yeah, no, that was past my time. But that's exactly the kind of thing. Like people do something like that, and then they would go to a company like ours and be like, "Help us fix it." Mm, got yeah. It, got it. So let's uh, fast forward a bit. So um, Bravo Investments. Yeah. Um, what does that firm uh, entail in, in its uh, mission and goal? Sure. I will say, first and foremost, the mission and goal is to make a lot of money. It's an investment company. It's not charity and it's not philanthropy. Mm -hmm. um, so the first and foremost goal is to get a return on the investment for our, our investors. Mm -hmm. um, the second goal um, is that we only invest in companies that can prove to us that they're making an economic impact on a lot of women. So mm -hmm. not one woman. Mm -hmm. So it isn't about the founder. It's not even like about a few hundred women. But it's about large-scale businesses that can prove to me that they're disproportionately benefiting women. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, my concern is that a lot of people who focus on investing in women are focusing on investing in the founder has to be a woman. Now, they could be making some random-ass widget that doesn't do anything, or they could be a coal company or a porn company. Like, but as long as it's women-founded, that's what matters. And most people that are in the space of investing in women, that's how they define define it. Investing in women equals women founder. My problem with that is a couple of things. Um, one, if you've set yourself up to only talk to people who have a woman founder on the team, then it means that you might like look at the next Tory Burch or the next like Sarah Blakely. These are good entrepreneurs who Sarah Blakely is a billionaire, right? She invented Spanx. Totally, you know, a good company to have invested in, right? So there's nothing wrong with those companies. But it means that like you're gonna talk to like the next Sarah Blakely or the next Tory Burch, but you're not gonna even take a meeting from like two dudes who maybe cured breast cancer, mm. right? So you've set your business up to be able to look at one kind of company and not the other. And to me, it's like if you really care about women and you really wanna make an impact on women, for God's sakes, like invest in the dude who cured breast cancer, Absolutely. you know, over like some fashion company. And so that's why we don't actually prioritize who the founder is. We care about what the model is. And if the model is going to put money in the wallets of women or save women's lives or something that I can measure with dollars and cents, then we want to talk to them, even if there's no women founders, right? Um, the other reason that we did it this way and the other reason that's really important to me is I looked at the last 15 years of all of the investors that focus on women and I looked at their portfolio companies and I saw what companies are they investing in. And what I saw is something that nobody talks about. So you hear the statistics all the time. Like, have you heard what percentage of VC goes to women-owned businesses? No. It's low, right? There are different statistics. Some of them are three, five, seven. Like, these are the numbers that I've heard. Um, they shift. Um, and I believe that in the last year, they actually went down. But regardless, it's three, five percent, let's say. What nobody talks about is that the percentage of VC that goes to women of color is mm. 0.1 percent wow so it's like come on it may as well be zero mm -hmm. right and the reason is that the women who are investing in women and who are starting these funds that focus on women they're doing the same thing that the bros in silicon valley were doing mm. they're doing pattern matching so the same way that the bros only invest in people who look like them and who went to the same schools as them these women who are starting funds are only investing in white women mm. and you could say that it's just, it's bias, it's all the different things that like, I don't know, smarter people than me know how to fix, but I think it's a pipeline problem. I think, not exclusively, but I do think part of the problem is pipeline, because I think that 
black and brown women are starting more businesses than anyone else in this country, but more than 90% of them are micro-businesses, mm -hmm. right? So they're like the massage therapist, right, mm -hmm. who decides to, you know, put up her own shingle and start her business. They're the dog walker, the house cleaner, these micro-businesses that even if you connected them with a VC tomorrow, they wouldn't even know how to ask for a series A or for, you know, a seed round. Like, they don't have a deck. They don't even probably understand how VC works. And so um, what I'm focusing on is I'm looking at that entire ecosystem of millions, I would argue, of entrepreneurial black and brown women. And I'm saying, what's preventing them from being successful as entrepreneurs and from having big companies, companies that become like household names? And what prevents them from doing that is the fact that they're barely surviving, mm. right? They don't have savings account with $50,000 ready to invest in themselves. Right. They don't have friends and neighbors and family Absolutely. who also can write a $10,000 check. Mm -hmm. And they also don't have friends at Fast Company who can write an article about their company. There you go. Or who can pick up the phone and call Coca-Cola and you know, hook them up with some deal, right? I like a resource. And so I don't believe in taking one woman and saying, let's make her a billionaire and let's call it a day and we've made an impact on the world. Because if you believe that one woman, say a black or a Latina woman becoming a billionaire, solves the problem for all women, then what you're selling me is trickle-down economics. Mm. And I didn't believe it when Reagan was selling it. <laughs> and I'm not going to believe it when anyone else is selling it to me. And so I would rather focus on business models that take a billion women mm and take them out of survival mode wow. where they have savings account and they can afford to send their kids to college. I'm not trying to make them billionaires. I'm trying to take a billion women and make them a little bit better off so that they can eventually be the ones that take over the entrepreneurial world. They're already super scrappy and entrepreneurial. I don't Absolutely. have to teach them that, right? All I have to do is get them out of survival mode and into being able to thrive. And if we have thousands, maybe even millions of women who are out of survival, imagine what that would look like. Right? So that's what I care about. I gotta say, if, uh, if I was a VC, you get a million. <laughs> you get a million. What's, what, what's um, entrepreneur activism? I think it's what I'm doing. Um, I think that it is people like me who don't believe that the solutions to our problems come from handing out charity. Um, so you end up finding entrepreneurial solutions to those problems, right? Um, which means that they have to make money, they have to thrive, they have to be sustainable, they have to still exist years from now. Um, yeah, I think that that's what it is. It just means somebody who thinks, let me look at a social problem and let me apply an entrepreneurial solution to it, right? People joke that I'm too focused on entrepreneurship. Um, one of my friends says, Natalie, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Because um, every time anybody presents any problem to me, I'm like, entrepreneurship is the solution. <laughs> um, and I, I admit that like some problems require policy and politics and advocacy. And you know maybe entrepreneurship isn't the solution to, solution to everything, but damn, if I've not figured out like I've not found a problem that couldn't be helped by it so um, it's my tool it's my hammer it's what I know and so I'm gonna keep hitting everything I can with it gotcha. before I'm oh, sorry bro no, no. Uh, before somebody gets to a, a VC round or to sit at those tables they have to you know prepare themselves and their businesses what are what are three things yeah that um, any entrepreneurs or, or specifically women can can do to prepare themselves to step into those uh, opportunities. Yeah, um, I actually just wrote a book with fifty of those things. Okay. <laughs> um, but I'll tell you, like my favorite ones. Um, I have. Uh, how are we? How are we with cursing? Knock yourself out. <laughs> all right. Fucking late. All right. Because <laughs> it's fifty hacks, and it's fifty hacks for women entrepreneurs. And one of the hacks, which is one of my favorite ones, is fuck your friends and family round. Because mm. I find that terminology kind of insulting, right? There's this requirement that before you go out for your seed raise, you have to prove to the investor that you raised your friends and family around. And the thinking is that if your friends don't believe you in, in you and your family doesn't believe in you and you don't believe in yourself and your community hasn't all huddled around you to, you know, pool their money and invest in you, then you're probably not all in. Is that a cultural thing? 
That's a VC cultural thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's why it's called the friends and family round. And I find that incredibly insulting because what if you're the one who makes the most money out of your friends and family? Mm. What if you don't want to bankrupt grandma for your company no matter what, how much you believe in it, right? Like it just assumes that you have people around you who can all write checks to support you. Um, and I just think that that's a really narrow-minded assumption, right? And so, so I guess to answer your question, that first thing that I would say is Traction is what people are looking for. They're looking to see that people around you care and are interested in your business, but there are more ways to do that than just asking for money from the people around you, especially if they don't have money, right? You can do crowdfunding. You can get free money from places that a lot of people aren't familiar with, right? Um, places like contests and competition and pitch you know, festivals. Um, you can also go to places that are not so sexy like the SBA or the big corporations that have you know, specific programs, especially for women entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. um, those are the places where you might be able to not just get money, but it's free money. Um, and it's money that you don't have to give away equity in your company for. Mm -hmm. um, but crowdfunding is, is definitely not just the traditional first kind of crowdfunding where people aren't getting a piece of your company, but now with the Jobs Act, you can do equity crowdfunding. You can actually give people a little piece of your company, right? So I guess that was my, that's my first thing is like, when people talk to you about your friends and family around, like translate that into what you can make happen, right? Which is different than just asking your friends and family for money. You know, the other thing that I think about is um, getting some tr things for free. Um, I think that very much like my story with the car dealership, right? Um, there are definitely things that you can exchange. There's talent that you have, there's stuff that you can get. And I think that no matter what, no matter how much money you're making, you know, I'm later in my career now, I've been in, you know, business for over 20 years, like going on 22 now, but I have not gotten out of the habit of asking for things for free. I went to a conference last month and everybody thinks that Bravo is spending a ton of money on conferences because our name was on the step and repeat, our logo was on the program, you know, Bravo was like one of the key sponsors of this amazing big deal conference and what I did was I hooked them up with a bunch of other sponsors and what I asked for in exchange is to have my logo splattered on everything, right? I made a few phone calls, I did a little bit of sales, and I got the money, and in exchange, I got to look like a sponsor, wow. right? So you just can't get out of the habit of asking for stuff for free. Like, why should I pay for sponsorship? Hmm. I know my time is valuable, and I know that I can make rain, right? Nice. So, I don't know, I guess those are my two things. And then the last one I would say is, everybody's obsessed with exits. Mm -hmm. Are you gonna go public? Are you gonna sell your company? Um, there's another way. Right? If you want to have your company forever, you can focus on just both profits and growth, and you can also think about what like alternative exits look like. Um, one of my investors is one of the coolest founders of a company called Hanky Panky. <laughs> it's it's high-end lingerie, so you can't buy it at Target or Walmart. You can only buy it at like, like on the Perla. Neiman. Yeah, exactly. Um, Neiman Marcus, Barney's, whatever, and they've been around for forty freaking years. Whoa. And either you've never heard of them, I hadn't heard of them before I met her, or you're obsessed. They have like a cult following. People are obsessed with them. Mm. And after being in business for forty years, last November uh, or October. They, after a year of preparing, they got all their employees together. They have employees in a factory in Jamaica, Queens, and then they have employees in a, their showroom on Park Avenue. They got all like hundred and I don't know how many employees together in a room, and they announced to them that they were exiting after 40 years of being privately held and never taking investment. And what they defined as an exit is an employee purchase. Mm. They gave their company to all hundred and plus employees. Whoa after 40 years of being in business. Like, that's the kind of exit that nobody talks about, right? That's not on the cover of Fast Company. Hmm. I'm working to make sure that the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal write a, a story about this. Mm -hmm. um, because people need to know. Like, it's not just about IPOs and getting acquired. Like, after you work hard like they did for 40 years and they built an amazing company, you could do something like that. Give it back to the people. Totally, the people who made it happen. That's fine. I have a um, question for you. I wanted to, um, because sometimes, you know, entrepreneurs, especially entrepreneurs of color, have, have apprehension and fear about taking money. Mm -hmm. How do you communicate to them saying that it's okay and this is part of the business ecosystem, part of the business life? How do yeah. you, like, you know, explain that to them? 
I have to say that that's a really important question. So I have a friend named uh, Don Ray Vaughn, um, who came from the music industry and now he's an investor. He's African-American. Um, I put him in my book because I think that his message is so important. He mapped it out to me and I completely agree with him. And his concern is, Natalie, we are spending so much energy telling investors, excuse me, telling founders of color that we need to get them VC, right? And they need to get investment. And this is this is a big thing that everybody's talking about, like diversify and you know. But what we aren't talking about is debt. It's not so sexy. But what we know is that if you're using VC money to like get through payroll this month, or if you're using VC money just to like stock inventory or do things that are just more of like day-to-day, -day, you know, managing of your business, that's not what VC money is supposed to be for. VC money is supposed to be to get you to the next level. So if you have like a more traditional manufacturing company, well, you just bought yourself a factory or you just did something, you know, to basically double, triple, quadruple your capacity. That's what VC money is for. It's not for like day-to-day -day management of the business. Day-to-day -day management of the business, if you need capital for that, that's what loans are for. That's what a line of credit is for. But that's not sexy. There are no like top loan officers on the cover of any magazines, right? The way the top VCs are. So there's something about debt. For Latinos, debt is just bad. Like nobody, like debt is something you get out of, right? Um, and I think generally for the population that we're talking about, it's just, it's either scary and bad or it's just not sexy and nobody talks about it. And the reality is, is a successful company has to have a balance of some VC, if they take VC, and some debt. Like it's a balance of the two and nobody's talking about the debt side. So that's huge. Like that issue to me is huge. And, and I spend a lot of energy explaining to entrepreneurs that you have to have both. And if you end up only having VC and that's what you use for all your day-to-day -day operations, then you're gonna have what's called an unbalanced capital stack. And an unbalanced capital stack results in failed companies. And my concern is that we're putting so much energy into talking about VC that in 10 years, somebody's gonna look back at all the black and brown founders that got VC. They're gonna see that they had a higher rate of failure. And what are they gonna blame it on? They're not gonna blame it on they were encouraged to take on too much VC and they had an unbalanced capital stack. Right. What do you think they're gonna blame it on? On the, the entrepreneurs, you're right. So it worries me. Yeah. This issue worries me a ton and I want more and more people to be talking about it, so I'm glad you asked. Nice. That's mm -hmm. tremendous. Yeah, I've seen you, um, you've expanded into writing as well too. When, is writing, when has writing <laughs> become a passion for you? Um, I don't know that it ever stopped being a passion. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an artist. Um, and you I all, did, you a recording artist? Or? Always. No, I was like I was into photography when I was really young and then later I was into painting and then I was always into writing. Um, and it was just it was a thing that I always did. So even uh, most of my companies were in Seattle. Um, as I mentioned, my biggest customer was always Microsoft. Um, and in Seattle, I was super involved with the spoken word scene. Like, I always had these two lives where I was like tech over here and I had dope. like my art world over there. Super dope. Yeah, so when I left tech um, in 2011, I was like, I'm gonna take a couple years off. I'm gonna just, you know, focus on me and take a couple years off. And I decided to apply to Columbia uh, to study theater, um, wow. playwriting. I love plays. Yeah, so um, all I can say is, uh, maybe similar to when I was 20, I, I, got, I got a little bit of dumb luck on my side. Um, people at Columbia clearly had a sense of humor, because what the hell does a tech startup person, like what is she going to do come and study theater here? But With all the it, drama that you've been through. I'm maybe, sure. <laughs> maybe, I don't know, but, uh, but they let me in and I made the most of it. And so I studied playwriting um, and then I, I I don't know, I like Forrest Gumped my way through that whole program where it was like I happened to be in these rooms where I'm like, how am I here right now? Like, I ended up getting involved in Hamilton. I ended up like, crazy stuff happened to me in those two years and it was it was awesome. I wrote many plays, I worked with amazing people. Um, I was at the um, summer theater company where um, Steve Barton and Edie Brickell were working on their musical and then Lin-Manuel shows up with all his people on this thing called Hamilton Mixtape and I'm like, who are these people? And like, yeah, um, it was awesome. And so writing will always be a passion for me um, because I'm so focused now on the business side again, I wasn't able to do my book 100% me and so I brought in some help and I have a co-writer.
um, which is awesome. Um, and I thought it was going to be miserable for her because being a co-writer for somebody who doesn't write, like they just let you take the reins. But being the co-writer for me, <laughs> uh, but it was good. We got along really well. We had a really good creative process. Nice, nice. Yeah. So let's talk about your book then. Um, what's your book called? And what are the principles of it? It's called Leapfrog. Um, it was originally going to be called Leapfrog: Fifty Hacks for Women Entrepreneurs or Anyone Without a Trust Fund. That was the original name. Uh, the publisher decided to change it very recently, and so now it's going to be called Leapfrog, the New Revolution for Women Entrepreneurs. Um, they thought that, that seemed bigger. Um, they thought that hacks made it feel small and scrappy. Um, and they worried that trust funds, if you really don't have one, isn't a word that everybody knows. And so I, I think that the feedback was right. It was for all the right reasons. And so, But that's ultimately what it is. It's a book with 50 hacks. And it's stuff like fuck your friends and family around, or you know, debt isn't a bad word. Um, it's a whole series of 50 hacks, and each of the hacks is connected to the story of somebody. So for example, Lita, the founder of Hanky Panky, right? Like her story is in there. Um, so I'm not just saying, hey, there's an alternative way to exit, but I'm telling you a story of somebody who did it. Um, hopefully to inspire people to copy and to come up with their own hacks and their own ways to basically like cir circumvent the system. That's what I wanted the book to be about. It's people tell you that you're supposed to do A, B, C, and D. I say screw B and C. Like why should you have to do it that way, right? There are plenty of ways to take, take shortcuts that are ethical, that are just smart, you know? Um, and the example that I always give people is like in Latin America, I go home to Ecuador and I'll see a farmer that like never had a phone line in their house. But now you see them walking around with two smartphones in their pockets. And you're just like, what? What did you, you know? So there was a step. There was a series of steps that I guess you're supposed to go through. But this farmer doesn't give a shit about that. He just, he skipped that, right? And he went straight into having, you know, Zoom and taking international payments and being able to sell whatever the hell he's making, you know, to somebody from, an, you know, outside of, outside of that country. And so, you know, he skipped, I don't know how many steps in that process. And that's what I want our communities to do. Right? I want our communities to be less fixated on following the rules and doing everything the right way and to find these shortcuts. Um, everybody who is in power and has influence and has capital today took a shortcut, even if that shortcut was just in the form of like a trust fund Absolutely. or an influential daddy who picked up the phone and got you that first job. Mm -hmm. Like those are shortcuts. Mm -hmm. And if they can take them, why the hell shouldn't we? Absolutely. Right? Is the book in Spanish as well? It's going to be. Just want to touch on one thing before we close. Um, success. So, I, I, while doing um, research on you, I saw that you suffered from imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. For somebody who works so hard for every for every inch, every centimeter, how how did you find yourself in in that you know quandary? And what are some things for other individuals who are going through that? Um, how did you climb out of that um, situation? First. Tell people what's imposter syndrome. Okay. People like me. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so imposter syndrome, and forgive me if I'm not saying it right. Imposter syndrome is when you've done um, extraordinarily well, you think, nah, this it got to be a fluke. It can't be me. Like you know, it's, it's got to be luck. Is you attribute it to everything else but your hard work? Mm. Gotcha. I think. That imposter syndrome is for everyone. Um, I think that it hits you when you're in high school thinking that you don't deserve to get into certain colleges. Mm -hmm. I think that it hits you when you're the president of a, of a bank and you've, you know, you're at the top of your career and you think it was a fluke. I think it doesn't matter if you're rich, if you're poor, if you're successful, if you're not successful, if you're starting or if you're already established. And I personally think, uh, to your question, that you never dig yourself out. I think that, and that, you know, I wouldn't apply this to everyone, but I think that for me, imposter syndrome is something that you will always have, and it's a question of sort of making peace with it and figuring, figuring out a way to almost coexist, right? That little voice is, I think, always gonna be there, but over the years, I've gotten better at managing it or I've gotten better at knowing, oh, there's that voice again. You know, the reason that's happening is because I'm starting something. And even though I'm really good at starting stuff, 
it turns out the time in my life when the voice gets loud is when I'm starting stuff. It's like when I most need to be confident, when I most need, you know, all the energy. That little voice that says like, you know what, the last time it didn't go so well, it's probably going to happen again. Or the yeah. last time you were successful, but like it was probably, like you said, a fluke. Um, and so for me, it's more about making peace with that voice and saying, you know what, that's just that voice. And there it is again. And I'm not going to pay attention to it and I'm going to channel my energy into something else. And uh, one of my mentors, I, I think that our best mentors are people who don't have anything to do with what you do. Mm. People who like are not in your industry, who are not mm. drinking the Kool-Aid. My best mentor to this day has been a woman who is uh, an opera singer. Um, she's Whoa. a New Yorkian lady. Yeah, she's crazy. Her name is Awila Verdejo. And when she was 30 years old, she was a, an elementary school teacher. She had put her husband through PhD school at Columbia, wow. and she was raising two kids. Wow. And then he graduated with his PhD, and she's like, okay, it's my turn. And she had always wanted to be a singer. So at 30 freaking years old, she applies to Juilliard, and she gets a full ride to study opera. Major. She graduates from Juilliard, divorces the husband, packs up her kids, <laughs> and moves to Stuttgart in Germany where she can be within like four hours or something of every major opera house in Europe. Whoa. And then she proceeds to have an amazing world-renowned career as an opera singer, right? Incredible. So like she doesn't know anything about tech, she doesn't know anything about M&A, like she doesn't know anything about the stuff that I'm dealing with, and she became my mentor. And one day when I was starting something, I came and I was doing that thing where like, I don't think I can do this, this is a bad idea, and all this stuff with the voice, right? And she came to me and she was like, you have to understand and accept once and for all that you are the source of your own supply. Mm. Everything that you've done mm. came from you, and everything you're gonna do is gonna come from you again. Mm. Even if you have to start from scratch. And mm. that phrase, that you are the source of your own supply, I don't know, I think, first of all, anybody who wants to use it, it's theirs. <laughs> but I think everybody needs to find that thing that becomes like your mantra, it becomes a thing that when the voice comes up, you have it as like almost a, a, an instinct to counter it with something. And for me, it's that. Like literally, when those voices enter my head, I find myself just repeating again and again, like, you are the source of your own supply. You are the source of your own supply. And it's just a reminder for me that I've done it before, I can do it again. I've heard older women tell me that eventually it goes away. I don't believe it. I think if you're humble and if you know that the grind is the grind, that there will always be a little voice that doubts. And uh, I don't know, instead of hating it, I've sort of made peace with it. Mm, got it. Just a couple questions before we wrap. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, don't want, I want to talk about your experience in um, receiving venture capital and what mm -hmm. challenges that you've experienced that you um, want to actually be a catalyst to show other people that it can happen, number one, and how do you go about it? Uh, maybe I should say first of all, I would hope that most people would exhaust all other possibilities before they try to get VC. Mm. It's not the best way, um, it's not the only way, and I would want and encourage people to try to build businesses where they can sustain themselves for as long as possible. Uh, before they go and take any VC and give up any equity, uh, which I know is a weird thing to say as an investor, but um, I do feel that way. Um, I think there are too many predatory investors out there who are going to take too much of your business and give you terms that aren't great and eventually take so much of your company that they can fire you, right? We've all seen a lot of these cases where the founders get fired, right? Um, so unless you're willing to risk being fired from your own company, don't take VC. Um, but if you decide that you want to go down that path, then I think the things to think about are making sure that you know your company and you know your numbers. So for example, there's a woman named Christina Wallace and her company and, and the failure of her company is actually a case study at Harvard Business School. Wow. Um, and one of the things that she attributes to the failure of the company is that she took money from, an, from a VC who wasn't really familiar with online e-shopping and sort of generally like online businesses mm -hmm. um, and that investor just was like it's all about the hits it's all about how much traffic you get to your website mm -hmm. but her website was transacting it was a retail site that was selling custom-made clothes for women of all shapes and sizes mm -hmm. and it was like who cares how many people come to your website yeah. what matters is how many of them are converting and buying right, right. 
But this investor was hell-bent on impressions. And so he put it in the term sheet and he put it in as like a series of milestones that she had to hit in terms of impressions in order to unlock the next round of capital and the next round of capital. And so she became focused on impressions because she had this term sheet that basically said she had to. Uh, and she ended up not paying enough attention on her, you know, um, on the conversions. Uh, and that's a big reason for, you know, it's one of the reasons that our company failed. And that's, I think for me, the moral of the story with that is just that if, she, if you, one, know your numbers really well, and if you are confident that like, this is how my company is successful, it doesn't matter about the impressions, then your job is to educate that potentially ignorant investor. Right? right, and be like, no, dude. <laughs> I know you think that the impressions is really important, but that's not what's important in my business. In my business, it's this and this and this, right? So being super smart about your numbers, um, and that doesn't have to mean that you're a finance person, uh, but knowing them inside and out, not understanding that, and being able to stand up to the investors and say, look, this is how my company works. I don't know what you know, what you're familiar with, but this is how my company works. Um, I think that's probably the most important thing. And that way you know when you're getting terms that don't make sense, right? And you can call bullshit on them. Got it. Wow. She's a good one. <laughs> 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 um, I mean, so last question we asked all our guests this is, um, what drives you? What keeps you going to live this amazing life you have and, you know, to keep building community and providing resources, opportunities about building million dollar companies and just being great like what keeps you going I left tech and in my mind I had escaped right so I went to study theater and then I co-founded the Center for Women Entrepreneurs at, at Barnard in my mind like I was escaping and I was sort of removing myself but what ended up happening was these students figure they're smart right they look at your bio they figure out where you came from and so all these students that wanted to go into tech started to come to me and be like, we know your background, can you hook us up? Can you, you know, I want to do an internship at Microsoft, whatever. And I started to feel really guilty. And I was like, man, I left this industry and now, and I have all sorts of issues with it. I think it's actually worse off now than it was 20 years ago. And now there's this whole new generation of women that are asking me to help them get into this industry that I just fled. And I started to feel guilty and I was like, okay, I spent 15 years in an industry and I didn't leave it any better than I found it. Mm. So if you ask me what drives me, it's that. It's looking in the faces of all of these young women who want a place in that world and realizing that I have to go back in, right? I have to go back into that world now that I don't really care people's opinions and I basically speak my mind. Um, nice. And I have to stir up some trouble and realize that I, I need a little bit of a do-over, right? And I will fucking leave that industry better than I found it. I didn't do it the first time around, but I will now. Nice. Bars. Bars. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Natalie, for being with us and coming on our podcast. Just yeah. a wealth of experience and energy. <laughs> this was fun. Anytime. Dave, we really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, that's all, folks. It's time to hit that dusty trail. So like we always say at this time. Socials. Oh, oh, my bad. Tell the people where to find you, your book. All of this stuff that, uh, yeah. Yeah, okay, products. so the book is called Leapfrog, um, and everything you need to know about it is at leapfroghacks.com. Mm -hmm. um, my handle is Natalie Molina um, on Twitter, and that's spelled N-A-T-H-A-L-I-E, Molina, M-O-L-I-N-A. Sweet. Finax. Nice. Like we always say this time, stay driven. <laughs>